0: of peace continue our theme in dangerous faith from acts chapter 6 verses 18 and 15 um, we've got a little bit of projection issues as well but most of the text on the screen I invite you to bring your bibles and use them read them as well as uh, maybe click on your app or device and use that So acts chapter 6 now stephen a man full of god's grace and power performed great wonders and signs among the people Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews from Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Then they produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then onwards into chapter 7, verse 44. Stephen is speaking. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who employed, enjoyed God's favor and, enjo- uh, and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands as the prophet says heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool what kind of house will you build for me says the lord or oh, where will my resting place be has not my hand made all things all these things you stiff-necked people your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised You are just like your ancestors. You were always resisting the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. I'm going to read a couple more verses in a moment from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. In Dangerous Faith, the, the theme this morning is God's temple is not built by human hands. The, the context is Stephen. Stephen was someone who was from a Greek background. It wasn't from uh, the, the kind of Jewish background of which many of the, the early apostles were, those gathered around Jesus initially. Uh, Peter, James, and John, they were uh, from Jewish believers. They spoke Aramaic. They were in Galilee. And, and much of Jesus' ministry, as we know, was centered in and around Judah. I mean, he strayed into, not strayed, he ventured purposefully into Samaria and the Decapolis, and there's always that that kind of glimmer that the gospel, the kingdom of God, is not just reserved for a particular people in a particular place and that particular time, but the boundaries are shifting of enlarging that God's heart is for all. The story of Acts reminds us that Jesus was crucified and rose again he wasn't crucified for being a good citizen for just being a little bit nicer than everyone else the powers of the day saw in Jesus as he was arrested because they saw correctly that what he was teaching what he was doing was subversive because he followed a higher power of his father and wouldn't play the game with the powers of the age of Rome or even the religious leaders. And they took his life. And God restored his life, resurrected life, living forever. And the early church, filled with this spirit, empowered, bold, emboldened with great courage, spilt forth onto the streets as witnesses to the risen Jesus. One of the things that really challenged and shaped me when I first became a Christian was, or thinking about being a Christian, lots of things, but one of the the strong, compelling things that that I I took kind of uh, as quite a weighty thing was the transformation of these these people who were his disciples, who who were hiding and in fear and uh, locked behind doors and, and kind of had been scattered and denied Jesus. But something changed them. Something altered their outlook. And they were propelled to be witnesses, not to a dead Jesus, but in a living one, an alive one, a present one. And we see the outcome of their faithfulness, that that our history is transformed. Men who were timid, and women, to courageous world changers. They started to declare the Lord is risen. Stephen was one of those, one of the uh, seven deacons. A deacon is a a word that means servant. And... He was appointed along with Philip, and uh, you may, have, if you've read Chris Duffett's book, Come Across Philip, uh, it's a great story for the evangelist, but Stephen and Philip were appointed by the apostles because the apostles were, were, had many things to do to teach and administer bread and wine and to, were witnessing and praying, and, and they found that they were very, becoming really busy, and uh, that they, they were having, there were conflicts of how to kind of provide for the, for the poor, particularly the widows, And so they appointed these seven uh, servants, deacons, and uh, they were to help with the growing number of Christians from Greek backgrounds. I mean, it's really interesting insights early on of, of tensions. There was kind of love for Jesus and a kind of the gathered body and worship, but there were also some little tensions developing in the early church. I mean, who'd have thought that there are tensions in a church? Who'd have thought that there are times that that there's kind of like a bit of a friction, a bit of heat and light being generated because people have different ideas or different expectations. Doesn't happen here ever, does it? Yeah, it does. They appointed Stephen to help, to serve. Stephen, as I said, came from, uh, he was a Jew, but from a Greek background, and many of these people uh, who had come to faith in, uh, or who uh, have faith had faith in the one God, the one true God, but had been sort of uh, uh, spread around the, the, the ancient world after the exile, they call the diaspora. They were gathering in synagogues and places all over the known world. And, and under Alexander, Greek language, Greek culture came. And then uh, a little bit later with the, the, the ascendancy of Rome, the Greeks kind of... Uh, got pushed aside, and then Rome became the dominant rulers. But the language of, of Greece, Greek, the culture of Greece prevailed. It was the language of trade, the language of commerce. Latin, the language of government, of Rome. Greek, the language of trade and commerce. The lingua franca. don't know how you'd say that in Greek. I should do. But it was the common language. And obviously there were languages... Like Aramaic of the local places. Many of those from the Greek background were coming to Jerusalem and settling and staying. They'd relocated from elsewhere in the Roman Empire. We hear about them from Syrene, Libya, from Alexandria in Egypt, from Sicilia and Asia, what we'd now call Turkey. Many people coming to Jerusalem. In other words, one little contemporary insight is there were lots of immigrants, lots of people from other places, lots of people who wouldn't know the way and the form and the customs of the predominant culture in Jerusalem. It's very contemporary for us. And as such, we, we begin to see probably that there is early persecution and there's targeted persecution of those people who were called immigrants. Immigrants. And it may explain, just as we heard in chapter 8, why when persecution uh, broke out, that it wasn't the apostles because they were Aramaic in background, they were kind of native, they weren't the ones scattered, but those others who were the outsiders, who spoke with an accent, who had different maybe dress sense or customs, or kind of you could tell they were foreigner by the way that they pronounced things. They were the ones that were targeted, and when persecution came, they had to flee. the issues in the scripture are also very contemporary. Do you know that we live in an age and probably one of the things that will characterize the 21st century, not only the increase of religious extremism, but an increasing rate of people being displaced from their lands. If you're hearing anything about the news in South Africa at the moment, water shortages in Cape Town. People say, you know, the commodity, the preciousness of water, there will be water migrants, not just hope spike bands in the southeast. We heard of droughts in Spain, of droughts in Australia, droughts in California, of water rationing, of people on the move. Of course, uh, just hearing recently of, uh, again this week, the tragedy of another boat capsizing off Lydia, Libya and dozens of people losing their lives. Displaced people. Only a few years ago, the great exodus of people across the Mediterranean, fleeing war and persecution and violence. Did you know that today, actually the figures were for 2016, if all the displaced people in the world currently, internally displaced and those who've crossed national borders, if they were gathered in one place, they would be the 21st largest country, in the world. So many people are displaced and having to move. And we see in the New Testament, that's the context and the backdrop of which Stephen speaks. And he's been witnessing and he's been sharing the gospel and he's hauled in front of the authorities. And he makes this most provocative challenge. He says, God's temple is not built by human hands. And those gathered, the Sanhedrin, gnashed their teeth. We don't gnash teeth very often, do we? I've not gnashed my teeth for a while. <laughs> don't even grind them, I don't think. But I guess it's just like, a, it's a sign of fury, isn't it? It's like, it's like utterly speechless, but with anger. And they clasped their their hands over their ears and shouted. They were so riled because Stephen had said, God's temple isn't built by human hands. What's he on about? Why does that statement provoke his stoning? Why does that utterance so infuriate the religious authorities at the time that they kill him, the first martyr in the New Testament? Ron's got some helpful insights, and then I'll finish up just shortly.
1: In chapter seven of Acts, a Christian is martyred for the first time amid a hail of stones What was it that got him killed? Well, he had a dangerous idea. A very dangerous idea. And he puts it like this. He says, God's temple is not built with human hands. His name was Stephen and that got him killed. Of course, it didn't help that he said it in the temple to the very people who ran the temple. And it didn't help that he said it in a trial, in a way that didn't attempt to win friends and appeal to the jury. What Stephen said, how he said it, and where he said it, got him stoned to death by religious leaders, the first Christian to die for his faith. Stephen said, God's temple is not built by human hands. It doesn't seem that revolutionary. It doesn't even seem true on the face of it, because aren't all temples ultimately built by human hands? What's so wrong about a temple? What did Stephen see that got him killed? Something that he seemed to see as a Greek-speaking Jew, as opposed to the apostles who were Hebrew-speaking Jews, and they were a lot more positive toward the temple than Stephen was, what does he see in a temple that makes him speak against it so boldly? What's a temple doing for Stephen to lead us away from God rather than toward him? Well, think of it this way. If you wanted to send a letter to God in the first century AD, you would address it like this. God, Holy of Holies, Temple Mount, care of the high priest Jerusalem Palestine that's where God was that was God's address and the whole religion revolves around making sure that you're pure enough to come close to God's address to the Holy of Holies the purer you were the closer you got if you stayed pure God liked you you could approach but If you weren't pure, if you hung around with the wrong people, if you didn't wash your hands the right way, if you didn't say your prayers the correct way, if you didn't sacrifice the right animal, whatever, God wouldn't like you, God wouldn't hear you, God wouldn't save you. Being part of a purity religion is a terrifying business because Here's the problem. You never know whether you've been pure enough. Pure enough for God to actually like you. Jesus disagreed with this whole purity system. So much so that when he said the temple would be destroyed, the priests arranged for him to be killed. A religion that's all about becoming pure to be saved has a very important benefit for those in charge of it. It's a great system for controlling people. When I was working in China, I learned about the controlling power of religion from a very powerful man, a provincial leader in fact, pretty much with the power of life and death over tens of millions of people. I got in to meet him one time at a banquet and it was arranged by house church leaders who said, you know, this is a special opportunity here. Give him the gospel. Nobody's more powerful in this province than he is. Well, it was coming up to Christmas, so I told him the story of the nativity. And he began to listen very closely. So, so well, in fact, that I thought he might be thinking of becoming a Christian. And then he said, well, thank you for telling me about this, this religion. He leaned back and he spoke to one of his aides and he says, how many Christians do we have in this province? He got a reply and it seemed to surprise him and he gave this guy another order and the aide rose and left and then he turned to me and he said thank you again for telling me about this amazing religion he said I've just banned the celebration of the nativity in this province I said you've banned Christmas he said yes I said well why I said well Isn't it obvious? The idea that God could be a child born to a no-name girl in a no-name village, if that were true, God could be anyone. And God could be everywhere. He said, I can't have that getting around. I can't manage that, he said. And I said, well, what do you mean you can't manage that? You can't tell me you think you can manage God? And he said, well, yes, of course. I said, well, well, how would you manage God? He said, it's simple. You keep him in the temple. You keep him in the temple. He said, look at every Chinese village. It's got a temple. A peasant goes into the temple and they light a stick and they put it in an orange or a, a lemon, and they ask for a bit of good luck from their ancestors. I said. No harm done. Stays in the temple. Not dangerous. Doesn't really get out. This idea that God doesn't stay in the temple, but could be working through anyone at any time, everywhere, he said, oh, I can't manage that. It was like talking to Herod the Great or Caiaphas, the kind of men that put Stephen to death. And when he makes his great defense speech in the book of Acts, he's asking the question, well, Where did our great ancestors in the faith meet God? Did they meet him in the temple? Where did Abraham meet God? When he was a sun worshipper in Iraq. Where did Joseph meet God? When he was a prisoner in Egypt. Where did Moses meet God? When he was a shepherd in the desert in Midian. None of them, none of the great ancestors of the faith actually met God in the temple. Aren't you making a bit too much of this? Well, they didn't like it. What is a temple made with human hands, as Stephen means it? Well, a temple, it's something we build ourselves to keep God in. And it's very subtle because we think we're building it to get to God. But actually, it's how we keep him away. It's how we keep him out. So we always have to look at our lives and ask, well, is there a temple we have constructed with our own hands to keep God in, to manage him, if you like? Might be a tradition, a building, a place, a doctrine, a book, an experience even. Something that keeps God in, something that tries to make God safe and predictable, something we do that makes sure he's always on our side. It takes a lot of energy to keep God in a box like that. And it's very dangerous, dangerous to us, I mean, because God doesn't stay there. God can't be managed. And it's crazy to think that he can, but there's something in us that that attempts to. So a temple, according to Stephen, is the way we try to keep God at bay. And if we realize that's what we're doing, then actually God is, as it were, let out of the temple. But if you want your God safe and predictable, and manageable, oh yes, build a temple for him. But if you want God to be who he really is, dangerous, just, sovereign, accepting, then we better dismantle that temple and live.
0: person uh, who was holding the coats when Stephen was stoned, was a man named Saul, and in a chapter or so later, he encountered God, Jesus, on a road to Damascus, on the way to Syria to hunt down these these Christians, and he became a believer, and, and much of the New Testament is written by him. And in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, verse 16, he writes this word. Do not deceive yourself. Don't, sorry, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? Then in chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, he says it again, but with a slightly different emphasis. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you whom you have received from God, you are not your own, you are bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. the Paul who was one of those who was gnashing his teeth and hands to his ears and, and furious with Stephen for saying God it isn't in a temple built by human hands. In that very place, came to understand that that was true, that that old form, that shadow of the former things had been fulfilled and completed in Jesus. Jesus was right to say this temple would be torn down and rebuilt in three days because he was talking about his own body, the body of Christ. That in Jesus, not in the Holy of Holies behind the temple. In Jesus, the fullness of God dwelt and he was on the move, meeting people, encountering people on the margins and the edges and saying, God has drawn close to you. Here is the kingdom of God. And they ripped his body apart and crucified it and thought, done and dusted Remember what happened as as Jesus died? The temple curtain, that place that would separate the Holy of Holies, was torn top to bottom. And Jesus rose and gathered people. And Paul understood, uh, finally, when he met Jesus, that it was no longer about that great temple in Jerusalem. But God is taking up residence in people who believe. He's writing uh, about sexual morality in in chapter 6, and he says, don't be united with a prostitute. And he uses this argument. He says, don't you know that your body is the place in which the Holy Spirit dwells? And there's lots of implications and, and outworkings of that which I won't dwell upon now, but enough to say that Paul knew that now flesh and blood, you and I are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're the residence place now of God. If people in your street or your family or workplace want to know where they can find something of the presence of God, they should be able to look at you and go, we see God's presence. Hugely humbling statement. But I read another passage from, from chapter three sixteen of, of 1 Corinthians, and, and Paul is actually there saying to the, the, the gathered church, not just individuals, but saying, all of you, don't you know all of you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit? You're like a living temple. You're like living stones being built together. Not only do we carry the presence of God as individuals, but sister and brother, we carry the presence of God together. One of the things you can't do on your own is be the kind of the temple together, the people of God, the family of God, the, the flock of God. It's always a plural image. We can't do that on our own. It's part of the reason why we gather together. Because as we come as a living stone, a stone on its own isn't very wonderful to look at. But stones together are being built, fashioned, called to be the place that the glory of God dwells. Look around you, sister and brother. There's a living stone. No one's looking around them. Seriously. That in the sister and brother, the believer sitting next to you, God dwells. And in us together, God dwells. Isn't that amazing? So it's not just that person that's upset you on the way in. Well, they might have done In a moment, we're going to share a meal, and it's to do with the body of Jesus. There were challenges in Corinth- in, in the uh, in the. Um In the church in Corinth, and and Paul in chapter 11 writes those famous words that we often use at the table for what I received. I also passed on to you that the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, broke it, said, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And and he took the cup after supper and said, This is the cup of, of the new covenant poured out in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Absolutely. The reminder that we're called to be this new temple through Jesus, the very presence of God amongst us. Not church buildings, not temples, not cathedrals, much as those places are fun to visit and inspiring to see the history and faith that they contain. But now indwelling flesh and blood in Jesus, in his flesh and blood. And us called together. And and in the church in Corinth, Paul actually we never kind of get onto this because we never quite have time and it's always a little bit challenging. But but Paul says, Don't you know that some of you have brought judgment upon yourselves because you're eating this meal in an unworthy manner? You're ignoring Sisters and brothers who are gathered together with you. You're you're prioritizing the the grand and the good and the wealthy and those with status. And you're ignoring the poor and the marginalized and those who have less social status. They're on the outside. Some of you are having a faith meal and you're all getting fat and full and others are still going hungry. Don't you know that you are bringing judgment on yourself because you're dishonoring the body of Christ? Not the bread and wine, but the presence of God amongst the family. You're treating some as better than others. Sometimes you're holding unforgiveness against people who you've been called to be part of, part with, as living temples. As Ron rightly said, God's temple is not built by human hands. That each of us... It's filled with the Spirit. Together, we're filled with the Spirit, and God is at large through us. As we scatter out, we are the church, never stops. We are the body of Christ, never ceases to be, to make his presence known. We're going to share in this meal together. We're going to worship and celebrate and give thanks. We're going to be restored. And no peace once again with God and with one another. We're going to be reminded that it's through Jesus, through him alone. The fullness of the gospel completes forgiveness, eternal life given, reconciled to one another and to God. Hallelujah. And indwelt by the Spirit. Anna and the band, could you come and lead us? just as we prepare. I invite you if you'd like to stand, but if you'd like to sit and pray, if you'd like to personally, fresh, say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I've held this unforgiveness. I've been part of the fracture line, perhaps. Cause of challenge. I've not recognized my part. I've never thought myself important to be built into this living temple, that my place is my place. No one else can fill it. And as we prepare, we fix our eyes and thoughts afresh on him, not looking at ourselves, but lifting our gaze and saying, "Worthy, O oh, worthy are you Lord." Worthy are, worthy are you, Lord. Let's worship him.